This is Clutch Fans. And by the way, shout out to the Clutch fans. You're listening to the Clutch Fans Podcast, an open conversation for Houston Rockets diehards. I'm ready to get on Clutch Fans. Now, here's your host, the man who would have drafted Harold Miner over Robert Ory, Dave Hardesty. Welcome into the Clutch Fans Podcast. I'm uh, here at Toyota Center after Houston's 110-96 Game 1 win in the Western Conference Semifinals against the Utah Jazz. Here with my good friend MK Bauer. Uh, you know him on Twitter, at Moisicapenda. Uh, fantastic follow. If you're on Twitter, I absolutely recommend you follow him. Have great takes on, on the Rockets, on the Astros, the Texans, all Houston sports that he covers, as well as uh, food and movies. So, you know, MK, this was an interesting game. Rockets, you know, unlike game one against Minnesota, where they struggle out of the gate and not really hitting their shots and kind of eke out a few wins here and there, uh, they just blew the Jazz out of the water. 17 three-pointers on 53.1% shooting from, from long range, and um, the fifth consecutive game with at least 15 three-pointers made as the NBA postseason record. For all the concerns, that we had early on in the postseason about them not shooting well, they've kind of come back around the corner and, and kind of gotten back to them old selves again. And, and what's interesting specifically about this series is all of the debate about how good Utah is defensively and how much of an impact it has on what the Rockets do offensively. And today we saw the kind of dilemma that Utah finds itself in in terms of do they want to play their two big men, Gobert and Favors together, yeah. and how much does it impact what they can do offensively, and also kind of switching everything defensively, and B, do they have enough firepower to combat what the Rockets can do offensively they're clicking? Included the answer is no on both accounts. I think in the second half we saw Utah go small way more often than they did to start the game. And I just don't think, even, particularly with Rubio not here, and Rubio is not a great shooter, but he's a fantastic facilitator. And if you don't have him running your offense, it limits their ability to kind of really score with the Rockets. So, granted, it's one game, adjustments will be made, but from a standpoint of, of, of strategy moving forward, the Rockets come to a very good start. Yeah, I think you nailed a, probably the biggest issue. We were talking about this even before game is, you know, the Jazz have a, a huge advantage against a lot of teams, and they can run uh, two fantastic bigs and favors and uh, Gobert, and it's pretty much a problem uh, when they're trying to beat the Rockets. I mean, the Rockets, I think, coming into the series, it had been like 40 minutes they played together, maybe a little bit more. I think believe it was between negative 25 and negative 30 points, plus minus for the Jazz. Tonight was no exception. I think it was, uh, I believe it was negative 11 for them, uh, the times those two guys were out on the floor. Um, it's it's something the Rockets can take advantage when you've got four guys out there who can spread the floor, and they were hitting their threes tonight. I mean, I think that's, to be totally fair and honest, I'm a little bit worried. I hate to say that after the Rockets shoot very effectively from three, but, you know, that is 53.1% three-point shooting, uh, you know, is that going to carry over throughout this series? Is that um, something that's sustainable for the Rockets? That, that I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, Harden had a monster game. We'll talk about that as well. But, uh, you know, things like Chris Paul turning it over seven times. Not sure that's going to be something that you will see again in this series also. And Eric Gordon going 0 for 6 as well. As well as the Rockets shot, you saw certain guys not contributing to their offensive onslaught, which gives you reason to believe that they'll kind of come around as well. I don't think we're gonna, we anticipate P.G. Tucker 
shooting this well every game of the series. <laughs> right. But he's been very good of late, and if he's going to beat guys off the, off the bounce, that really turns a lot of things around in favor of the Rockets. If, if, if Utah insists on playing big, and we know the Rockets have smaller players who are good enough at defending bigger players so they can offset that to a, to a certain degree, the Rockets are going to have a huge advantage in the offensive end because Utah's bigs cannot keep keep up foot uh, foot speed wise with the smaller Rockets players. If that's a reason going off the dribble and a reason and, and Tucker going off the dribble, which sounds crazy, you know, given what we see for those two guys this season, but they have an advantage there that I think a lot of teams don't offer the Rockets with their defensive alignment. So I'm just curious to see what what Utah does moving forward. Like, are they going to stick with what they've done? Are they going to play with a small group a lot more often and see if, and test their luck there? Or do they stubbornly kind of figure out a different path to, to offset what the Rockets can give them, what can do to them offensively? I just think it's the one matchup that we've seen all season where the Rockets have had a distinct advantage, and game one did not show me anything different. Yeah, you know, Gobert, uh, no blocks tonight. Absolutely a shock. This is the guy who's likely to be Defensive Player of the Year, and uh, I think there was uh, put up the stat that the Rockets were 8 of 9 for, from within three feet against Gobert tonight, 8 of 9 from the field. Um, just a little strange to see the Rockets render him that ineffective. You bring up the second, or, or you know, the adjustments that the Jazz make. What adjustments do you think they can make? We did see in the second half that you know they outscored the Rockets, outplayed the Rockets. Of course, the Rockets were up 24 at half when they just used that explosion uh, to, to. I believe it was actually 25. I think it was 64 39. Um, and so you know, it, it was a different game in the second half. I think the Jazz, as you pointed out, used some smaller guys. Exum played a role. Burks um, and Raul Nato as well. Can is that something sustainable for us? Is that something the Jazz can take away from this game, the second half, and say, hey, we can we can have some success in Sorokas with the adjustments we made? I think it's something they definitely try in game two. And, and you talk about sustainability. I, I don't think Jay Crowder going 5 or 7 from deep when he's a 32% three-point shooter over the course of the season is sustainable for them as well. So I, I think they, they try their luck with a smaller group. Those guys can defend. There's a lot of switchability with when, when they go smaller, and maybe that kind of counteracts what the Rockets can do offensively. And they see what happens there. I think that's the, that's the best course of action they can take at this stage of the game because I think they've pretty clearly realized what they've done previously and what they always do to other teams doesn't particularly work against the Rockets. You can't keep banging your head against the wall and thinking something's going to change based on your previous lineups. And, and as good as Favors is working next to Gobert, as good as Gobert is, and to your point, non-factor defensively. I mean, they, they have to find a way to get him involved defensively, and they have to find a way to be a little bit better, a little bit more efficient offensively if they're going to go small because it's not going to work with their status quo. I think out of everything, they can kind of kind of come back to, to, to even level. They'll find a way to get Gobert involved defensively. I don't know how, but, but they better figure it out because the, the funny thing is, you know, I made a tweet early in the game about the Rockets having the potential to really open things up for the mid-range. By my numbers, they're only two for ten. Um, in mid-range shooting tonight. They got so much opportunity in the paint, 18 of 40. There was 17 of 50-32 um, from behind the, behind the line. Got to the free throw line quite a bit. They're doing all the things they normally do very well. They did it t- tonight or today very well in game one. So they have to find a way to kind of maybe lure James in a little bit more to get Gobert to be impactful. They got to bring Gobert out a little bit more to challenge some shots, not necessarily right at the rim, but uh, elsewhere in the paint. If he's going to be a non-factor defensively, they have no shot at all. And I think everybody recognizes that. They have to get him actively involved, and not just offensively, but defensively for them to have a chance to win the series. You bring up the mid-range game. It feels like in this series it's going gonna, it's gonna to 
play a key role for the Rockets at some point. I mean, I think yeah, I didn't know those numbers two for ten. You pointed out. I, I wouldn't be surprised if both of those were early on by Chris Paul yeah. when the Rockets were pulling away uh, in that first quarter. He had a couple of mid-range shots, and you thought, wow, they could do this all night. Uh, they're going to have to knock down some shots because you can see Gobert tentative to go out there mm-hmm. early on. We saw him tentative go, to go out on a PJ Tucker three top of the key, and he he knocked it down. Uh, you know, if you're pulling Rudy Gobert away from the basket, the Rockets can find those lanes uh, fairly easily. Got to talk to you about James Harden. Um, you know, the ESPN uh, reporter from covering the Thunder was was here tonight, and he was here to ask questions mainly about uh, of the Jazz players and coaches about the difference between um, Russell Westbrook and James Harden. And I just had to take a look at Westbrook's numbers from Game 5. He scores 46 points, takes him 43 shots to do that. Harden tonight puts up 41 points on 26 shots. Really uh, such a key difference to me. I mean, they are different players, but Harden's efficiency tonight was through the roof. 12 of 26 from the field, 7 of 12 from 3, 41 points, 8 rebounds, um, and 7 assists. And he's been doing it against the Jazz, one of the best defensive teams in the league, all season. Came in this year uh, shooting 55% from the field against the Jazz in the four games of the regular season. What do you see? What it, what it makes this such a great matchup, in your opinion, for Harden? It's interesting. For whatever reason, he seems very comfortable finding that spot in between the three-point line and the rim. And it's weird because we know he can be very stubborn sometimes going headfirst to the rim and getting a shot blocked or challenge or flailing and looking for foul calls. So now he didn't do that. He, he kind of found that, 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 and he's been doing it all season, to your point, nestling into that little mid-area and getting to the paint, but not all the way to the rim and getting folders. Or tonight we saw a couple times where it wasn't a full alley-oop to Clint Capella, but just enough to kind of get over the rim for Capella to come in and come on the backside and lay it in. He seems to know exactly where he wants to get on the floor against Utah, more so than any other team in the league, and he executes that opportunity very, very well. And it's not a fluke. This didn't feel like game one of Minnesota to me because he's played so well against Utah all season long. And it feels like this is something he can do throughout the course of this series because he feels very comfortable going against this particular defense. They don't have anybody one-on-one that's able to really kind of give him damn, give, cause some problems. Exum had one particular series where we're like, oh, that was pretty good. But by and large, he's getting by guys who's getting three-point shots up. He just seems like he's in a really good rhythm against the team more so than anybody else. And that spells trouble for Utah. I know a lot of teams in this league prefer to have one guy who's an excellent defensive player that they think can, can shut down hard to an extent or run multiple bodies at him. Utah doesn't seem like they really have a philosophy quite yet of what they want to do. I didn't see Jay Crowder on Harden. A great not deal not often. Yeah, yeah. Not, not often at all. And that seems like there will be a logical matchup for what they will want to do. They tried Exum. They tried Burks. They tried Mitchell. Nothing really worked. And if they're going to try to follow him to the, to the rim where Gobert is waiting and Harden is smart enough to kind of take that one step away and get like a little fadeaway jumper or something just in the paint and go there, that's not going to work either. So they better figure out some sort of way to activate themselves defensively against the best player in the league offensively, or, again, this is going to be a very, very short series. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, game, you know, game two is coming up on Wednesday, um, and I think D'Antoni's made it pretty clear they expect to see a different Jazz team. And the Jazz came in here, finished up a very tough series against the Thunder uh, on Friday night, I believe, and really had very little rest to come in here playing in a, an early afternoon game. Uh, here in Houston, and you know, to the Jazz's credit, they deflected any um, you know excuse making on that in that regard. But it has to play a role. I mean, it's it's just it's a very quick turnaround for a series, no question. So they expect to see a different team on Wednesday. Have to give a shout out to Trevor Ariza, who didn't uh, necessarily have you know a unbelievable game in the box score. Had eight points, did hit uh, two of his four threes, but 
Donovan Mitchell had a lot of praise for him, saying, "Hey, you know, this—he's making it more difficult than what I faced uh, against OKC in, in round one. He's, he's uh, really making it tough for him to get the ball in, in his uh, comfortable spots." Um, as uh, he just pointed out that he's taller than him, longer than him, and uh, he's a good defender. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy for him in this series. But I think that's the, the beauty the Rockets have. Uh, you know, Mitchell is such a big part of their offense. The Rockets can bring three, maybe four, guys that they can rotate in against him. I think by and large, that was pretty interesting that Ariza pretty much had the assignment tonight. I, I didn't see a lot of um, variance in terms of who the Rockets threw his way. It was, it was primarily Ariza's assignment. And Reza did a really good job. Man, Mitchell's really good. Uh, and, like, it's so impressive. He's one of these guys that you, when you see live and you see his ability to kind of cover space off the dribble and his creativity in terms of getting shots up around the rim, it kind of suns you a little bit. I knew he was good. I've seen him play a lot this year. I hadn't seen him play that well in person. And you recognize, man, he's a talented offensive player. Saying all that, I think Ariza did a really good job of just kind of contesting him again and again and again. There were some times that Mitchell got some blow-bys, but he's a smaller, quicker player and, again, creative once he gets to the rim. But I think if the Rockets can rely on Ariza to do this good of a job, what, 21 points or 22 shots, they'll take that level of efficiency all night, one for seven on threes. I think that's the key, too. At some point, back up back up a little bit, make him shoot, don't give him avenues to drive to the rim, and maybe he becomes that much more ineffective, than he, even more so than he was tonight. I think, by and large, if they're going to have him shoot that poorly by what they're doing defensively, make him shoot more from the perimeter and take a chances there. But if Reza can handle that assignment without a great deal of help, if you don't have to rotate a ton of bodies on, on Mitchell, and Reza can, can you know give you a lot of effort right in the court, and you're getting offense from elsewhere, like P.J. Tucker tonight, you're assuming Eric Gordon will kind of come around, and Reza can kind of step back a little bit offensively, that's a good, that's a good case scenario for the Rockets as well. Were you surprised it's Utah here and not OKC? No, I thought Utah was the, and I hate cliches, but I thought they were the better team. I think when you watch them play, there's a camaraderie there that exists and is lacking a little bit now with Rubio not there. But those guys kind of play on a string, offensively and defensively, and there isn't the variance in terms of the performances. I think we saw all season long Oklahoma City, A, play to a level of competition. B, played inconsistently based on what they felt like they were doing in the moment. And they seemed like a team that, that, that took challenges of playing the best teams in the league, Golden State, Cleveland, the Rockets, and took it to heart and played harder and better. And we talked about this before the postseason even started. My concern, if I was a fan of the Thunder, was that they weren't going to take that series very seriously because it was, quote-unquote, just Utah. Well, Utah showed them we're a good team, we're here to play. And I think it took them a couple games to figure that out, that we better get going, and it was too late. I don't think clearly... Utah has a top-line talent that Oklahoma City did, but 1 through 10, they were just as good, and they played harder and more cohesively, and that's why they're here in Oklahoma City. Yeah, OKC to me is, it was such a disappointment, and I, uh, you know, obviously uh, I have a thing with Russell Westbrook. I think this, he's a very polarizing figure. I mean, I think a lot of people either love him or hate him. There's very little middle ground, and I don't think it's ever been more polarizing than it was this season uh, and in this first-round series where he, he struggled uh, at times and didn't react too well. But I... You know, and, and feel free to just kind of hang with me on during this little petty tour. <laughs> but, you know, to me, I don't think anybody could have scripted a better season to destroy all the arguments that Russell Westbrook was the MVP over James Harden last year. Let me, let me say maybe not all. There were certain things like clutch time points that were that were interesting. But I think the narrative that the triple-double, the history, and the fact that he was doing it all by himself, 
those two arguments, I think, were destroyed with some of the things that we saw at the end of the year with the stat padding, with some, you know, going out and chasing those rebounds. And I think um, as well with how we saw players, you know, Victor Oladipo became playoff trash, becomes a franchise player over in Indiana, and, and vice versa. The exact same thing happened to Paul George. And Carmelo Anthony went from a 2017 All-Star to washed. I mean, universally accepted right now that his career is over and people are talking about buying him out. Um, to me, so much of this uh, lays at the feet of Russell Westbrook. Like I said, I think people either blame him or consider him blameless because of how much he does. But to me, I think uh, everything that happened this year, I don't think anybody could have scripted, uh, you know, dominated by Ricky Rubio and mocked by Mitt Romney. I think that nobody, <laughs> not even Hollywood would have bought that script. But I think everything that happened this year sort of validated that opinion that Harden was the guy it should have been it. I know Westbrook bashing is your passion project, but I, <laughs> but I will jump on you with this one. I think the Old Depot George is the strongest argument for your case. To watch Old Depot be as good as he was all season, he's going to be the runaway winner, a most improved player. That says a lot. And he was terrific today in Game 7 against Cleveland when they needed him. He's a dynamo. And when we saw them play last year here, he was just completely lost, and I don't think that's clearly all on him. I think that's about teammates, that's about system, that's about scheming, that's about opportunity. He got opportunity in Indiana, he blossomed as a player, that's not a coincidence. Conversely, Paul George, who we've seen have great postseason moments before, my God, he called himself Playoff P, did nothing for long stretches for the team this year, and an elimination game on the road was 2 for 16 and had more turnovers and points scored. The, the common denominator here is number zero for Oklahoma City. And I think there has to be something that, that's resolved within the organization about how your best player, and arguably one of the ten best players in the league, cannot elevate the performances of his players, of his teammates. That's part of what this game is. And I know a lot of people love Kobe Bryant, and I think the biggest flaw of Kobe Bryant's game was that he really didn't elevate the performance of his teammates. His will led them to a lot of places that other players couldn't go, but I don't think he made other guys better. And the way the game has changed over the course of the last 10 years, with the advent of the three-pointer being far more important, spacing, pace, smaller players, yada, 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 playing better with your team is a big part of this too. I think the, the why people gravitate towards Steph Curry is not just his dynamic shooting, but he's a fantastic facilitator, passer, gets other guys involved. Kevin Durant, James Harden, LeBron James through the course of his career. These guys are viewed as the elite players in this league because they get other guys involved. Russell doesn't do that. Despite leading the league in assists last year or this year, um, despite all the numbers or triple doubles and all the stuff, he doesn't really make anybody else better. They have to figure something out because they're going to be on a mediocrity treadmill for a long time. Yeah, Ceiling and floor are yeah. very close to each other. Yeah, if PG-13 leaves, they're stuck paying mellow money and he doesn't want to come off the bench, they're not going to get any better. They're going to be 40 to 45 wins every year through the last three years of Westbrook's prime. And I don't think anybody's going to be happy with that, specifically Russ Westbrook. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how you build around him, to be totally honest. I mean, obviously there is precedent. I mean, they had Kevin Durant, and they've they've you know nearly went to the finals a few years ago. Um, but you know, it's going to take a lot of talent uh, around him, and I'm, I'm not convinced that people want to play with him. But you know who is going to be most improved player next year, right? Who's that? Paul George. Yeah, all right, all right. I mean, I mean, that would be something else if he goes to L.A. as most improved player eight years into his career. That'd be outstanding. <laughs> exactly. Uh, before we go, I want to ask you about uh, LeBron. What did you think of today's uh, performance? He, he's phenomenal, and and we know this. And it, out of all the narratives that have existed in the NBA for the last few years, the one that I've never understood is people denigrating his game. 
because he's a selfless player. He's an incredible player. His 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 level of, of acumen is through the roof, and I think he cares more so than probably anybody in this league. He cares, and to watch him perform the way he performed today in a game seven, with what I think now is just a mediocre roster at best. Kevin Love showed up for a little bit in the fourth quarter, but by and large, those guys are just not there. And 45 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists, um, he's pretty damn good. And I love watching him play because I have an appreciation for greatness, and I realize that at some point, all of this extraordinary play is going to go away. He can't do this forever, despite the fact he's doing it again in year 15. And that that's the part of me that wants to see them keep advancing because I love watching them and a singular talent. But given what, they, what he has around him, I don't see how they beat Toronto. As much as Toronto chokes in the postseason, yeah. and as, wa- as as wobbly as they can appear on their own legs at times, I just don't see how he has enough to get that team past the Raptors and their inc- incredible depth. So this may be it for LeBron in Cleveland, and we'll see him next year here in Houston. It's fascinating to me how, how so many of these different uh, big stars are, um, based on how the playoffs have are going to happen, um, we're going to determine what might happen next year. I mean, we're, you were talking about the the, the Really, all the, the the wonderful things about LeBron, and I thought, well, we're going to see this firsthand next year. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, possibly yeah. be just you never know. I mean, it's, a, it's I still say it's a long shot that he would but, come. But, back but how do you feel about that? Like, to me, if the Rockets get to the finals, if they win a championship, if LeBron falls short, yeah. I think he's here. If the Rockets win a championship, see, I'm the opposite. I think if the Rockets win a championship, he that it would actually be, uh, you know, a legacy hurting thing along the lines of uh, what what Durant did to go to Golden State. Because even though Golden, I think Golden State had they won, Durant probably wouldn't have joined them. Is mm-hmm. my personal thought on that. But I, I think if the Rockets come up short, if they go to the Western Conference Finals, make a strong showing to Golden State, but that's not enough. I think then you've got a real chance. Now, I, I tend to think, and I have no nothing to base this off of, that James Harden would have a harder time with that. I, I'm personally of the opinion that a guy like Paul George would fit better. I mean, I think LeBron's a far better talent, don't get me wrong, but I think playing off of your two-point guards, whereas LeBron, a lot of his benefit is he can run the show as well. you know. And so we didn't see that hurt um, when you added a guy like Chris Paul. That was the big question. But if you have three guys, yeah. three chefs in the kitchen, that's that's a little bit different. But it's interesting that we differ there because I feel like if the Rockets fall short, they have a better chance of getting them than if they actually win it all. That's an excellent point. I will, I will counter with this. I think the, those three guys, if, if Chris is here and James is here and LeBron comes, are so unselfish. And the, the wonder that they, they will play with and, and the ball movement and the spacing, we talk a lot about this. The one thing, every now and then it likes with Houston, the ball sticks, particularly with Harden. I think it will go through the roof. And you would see some extraordinary playing because those guys are all very unselfish with the basketball. But that's that's neither here nor there. That's a long way down the road. Absolutely. We'll be back Wednesday when the Rockets play the Jazz. That's MK Bauer. He's the man. you got to follow him uh, on Twitter, at Moise Capenda. MK, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you, Dave.